Well, if you would take your Bible, turn back to Luke chapter one, as we close out this Christmas series, we've been in the middle of for a few weeks now, verses five to 25 is what we've been studying today. We'll finish verses 18 to 25. A couple of weeks ago, I was feeling nostalgic and our family had a rare night at home with nothing on the calendar. So I decided to introduce my kids to a a famous TV personality from my childhood. I just happened to see his face pop up on Amazon Prime and it brought back a lot of memories. So the next thing I know that kids and I are gathered around the TV, listening to the soothing voice of Bob Ross. Now, Bob Ross may not be your cup of tea, and honestly, I thought the kids would get bored in about 30 seconds and we'd be on to something else, but I was wrong because Bob did what Bob was famous for with his soothing voice and his gentle, happy brushstrokes hitting the canvas. He drew us in and we watched the entire episode. If you've seen Bob Ross, you know what makes him memorable is that he brought the art of painting to the masses. He may not have been talented enough to have his personal works displayed in the most popular art galleries of Europe, but what made him so mesmerizing is the fact that no one was better at painting a landscape and teaching you how to paint along in the span of 30 minutes. But what was fascinating about Bob Ross and really painters in general is As he would begin, in the first 10 or 15 minutes, you really would have a difficult time figuring out where this thing was going. He smears blobs of paint over large portions of the canvas that seem to be indistinguishable, and you wonder, is this guy really skilled at painting at all? But then as he progresses, little details begin to pop against the backdrop that he has painted. And then when in the final 30 seconds, he adds about 17 trees and 30 birds. And the next thing you know, there's a scene before you that you feel like you could walk into on a Sunday afternoon. But what Bob taught us is that you have to paint from the background forward. And to do that, You have to know where you're going before you start, and then you have to have the artistic skill to bring it about. Now that's fascinating and it's it's impressive when a man paints in that way on a small piece of canvas. But what about if the canvas is all of human history? You know, our sovereign God is a masterful artist. He's done that in physical ways. Of course, God has has displayed his glory in the many landscapes he's made across this planet. But what is truly amazing, what captivates our attention this morning is the fact that God has painted a plan of redemption, if you will, on the canvas of human history. In eternity past, God knew and determined before he ever created the world that he would send his son to redeem a people for himself. And then from the very beginning, there in the garden, right after Adam and Eve sinned, he began to to proclaim that a redeemer was coming. And then through the means of prophecy, he gave us detail after detail. Initially, the details were somewhat broad and, and somewhat vague, but as the Old Testament wakes its way to the prophet Malachi, things become clearer and clearer as to who this redeemer will be until finally we see the redeemer himself in the face of Christ. This morning, we have the privilege of studying the final detail in that plan of redemption just prior to the coming of Christ as we close out our study of the birth of John the Baptist, 
who was the forerunner, the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Just quickly, I know all of you haven't been with us as we've studied the first two sections. And so I'm gonna give you a flyby overview of where we've been. And to do that, I wanna begin by reading verses five to 17 of the gospel of Luke chapter one. Luke writes, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now the theme of the gospel of Luke as a whole is Jesus as the son of man, taking that title from the prophecy given to Daniel. But the theme that we've been unpacking over the last few weeks is this, that God undeniably validates John so that we might confidently believe in Jesus. As John was very clear to say the entirety of his life, this is all about pointing to the coming Messiah. As, as John would say, when Jesus came on the scene, he must increase, I must decrease. We saw in the first few verses, verses five to seven, the setting, two main characters here, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Zacharias being a priest. They sadly have had to undergo the trial of never being able to have children. And now they're advanced in years and it seems that all hope of that is lost. And certainly from a human medical perspective, that was true, but not from the perspective of God. Scene number two begins in verse eight and runs all the way down through verse 17. This is the announcement. We've seen several details about this announcement from the angel. We've seen a providential assignment that Zacharias who would have only served in the, in the temple for two weeks a year as the other priests rotated through is here for one of his weeks of service and he is chosen by lot to enter into the, the, the holy place there just in front of the veil uh, before the holy of holies to offer the incense offering which happened twice a day every day. This was really the high point of his priestly service as we've seen already 
priests were only allowed to do this one time in their entire priestly career. And then they were removed from the lot and would not be drawn again. So this is a big moment. It's the biggest moment of his life when it comes to his service as a priest. This is likely the evening offering of the incense offering because the people are gathered outside for prayer, which the evening prayer, the time of prayer coincided with this offering. This is detail number two. We see a prayerful crowd in verse 11. These worshipers are there to pray as Zacharias goes into the holy place. And as we'll see today, they become witnesses in part of what takes place. But this third detail is where we've been the last couple of weeks, an angelic announcement. Of course, the reason that this is here in Luke is because while Zacharias is in the holy place offering the offering of incense, an angel appears to him and this breaks the silence of God, which has lasted for 400 years. It's been 400 years since a prophet has been sent to Israel. The prophet Malachi was the final prophet. And now we have this angel speaking these prophetic words to Zacharias. And he answers the petition that Zacharias has. As we study, this petition really is twofold. One, Zacharias would just have prayed over the incense offering for the salvation of Israel and for the coming of Messiah. So this is, an, this is an answer to that prayer for not only he, but the nation as a whole, but also privately, personally, this will be an answer to their prayer for a child. They're to name the boy John, which means Yahweh has been gracious. And last Sunday, we saw three aspects of this birth and ministry of John. We saw that there will be joy over his birth, really unspeakable joy, not only from Zacharias and Elizabeth, but the entire world. Even today, we rejoice over this birth because it means the coming of Messiah right after him. We saw the affirmation of his credentials, that John the Baptist really served as the last of the prophets who would come as the prophets of the Old Testament came. He was a prophet under the Old Covenant, declaring the way of Messiah. Messiah would come and fulfill the Old Covenant and usher in the New Covenant. His greatness is told to us by the angel, but also as we saw by Christ, who said, until that time, no one greater than John had been born. Aspect number three, we saw the purpose of his ministry John's prophetic ministry is, is prophesied in Isaiah and in Malachi. He would come in the spirit of Elijah with bold tenacity, preaching a, a, a message of repentance for the people to turn from sin and back to God. He was the voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare a way for the Lord. And that brings us today to the end of this account, the summation of the account beginning in verse 18. Let's read our passage, verse 18 to verse 25. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. 
But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, as we come to verse 18, we're still in the holy place where there's a discussion taking place between this angel and Zacharias. So in that sense, we're in the same scene, but as Zacharias begins to speak, there's a major turn here in the scene. It's as if the camera turns and, and lands on the face of Zacharias. And so we're gonna take this as its own scene here and call it the sign. This is the sign. Notice what Zacharias says. This is the first time, by the way, Zacharias has spoken in this entire account. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? Now, unfortunately, Zacharias' first words are not encouraging. We know already from the text earlier that Zacharias and Elizabeth are godly people from God's own estimation. He says that they were faithful, righteous people. And yet here we have a moment, an instance of fleshly unbelief on the part of Zacharias as he tries to comprehend what the angel has just told him is about to take place. Essentially, Zacharias asked the angel for proof. Prove it to me. Now, it's true that other Old Testament figures, famous Old Testament figures, asked for signs. Abraham and, and Gideon, uh, to name a few, who, who were, were, were also trying to understand the prophecies that were being made to them. But clearly here, when Zacharias asked for a sign, he doesn't do so from a place of belief, but a place of unbelief. We know that clearly because the, the angel actually tells us what's going on in the heart of Zacharias. But even from the words that he says, it's clear because the question he asked is, how will I know that these things are gonna come to pass? Not coming from a place of, I already know this is going to ha happen, give me more details, but please prove to me how I can know for certain that what you just said will happen. This is a, a place of unbelief. Remember, Mary also asks a question later of the same angel, angel as, as Gabriel makes the announcement to her, but her question comes from a place of faith, not from a place of doubt. In Luke 1:34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now the translation there's a little bit unfortunate. Literally, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? She's not saying, prove to me that this will happen. She's saying, I believe what you've said. I just need some more details because I'm a virgin. So exactly how is it going to happen? She's not questioning that it will happen. Here with Zacharias, unfortunately, momentarily, he has a hard time believing what's just been said to him. The prophecy sounds good, don't get me wrong. He, I think this is something he desperately would want to be true, but he's having a very hard time believing it. And the reason for that is because it's so out of step with his circumstances. It, it just doesn't seem to make sense. This is the hurdle standing in the way. And he tells us, for, how, is, how am I gonna know this is gonna happen? He goes on to say, for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. 
Zacharias can't get past the fact that he and his wife are now long past the time in which they had hoped to have a child. And this just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem possible in his mind. And there's a lesson here for us, just for a moment. Let's, let's take a pause and, and admit the fact that we are most tempted to disbelieve the promises of God as revealed in the scriptures when they don't align with our circumstances. It's the, the vast gulf between what we see around us happening and what we see in the scripture that causes us concern. And so while God has not spoken to us privately by an angel and given us a prophecy as he has here with Zacharias, certainly in, in his inspired word, he has spoken promises to us that we can have faith will come to pass. Obviously, he promises us eternal life. He promises to sanctify us, to cause us to persevere in the faith to the end. He promises to save his people through the preaching of the gospel. He promises to build his church. He promises that in this life we will have trouble, but his grace will be sufficient. He promises to use all of our circumstances for ultimate spiritual good. He offers to us peace that surpasses understanding. And he promises that one day he will return for his people and set up a righteous kingdom in which righteousness truly defines and permeates the world. These are just a few of the promises that we have in scripture. And so before we're too critical and harsh with Zacharias at his unbelief, we need to recognize that far too often our faith is weaker than it should be, isn't it? Far too often we look at the promises of God of what he says the Christian life should be like and what he will supply for us and what's reality in our lives and we have a hard time reconciling the two. That's Zacharias here, just on a grander scale. But what happens next is the angel is going to remind Zacharias and you and I that the promises of God are immovable, just as he is unchanging, his word is unchanging. And if God says it will come to pass, it will come to pass. In just a moment, Zacharias will deeply regret his unbelief. And it starts here with what the angel says next. Verse 19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel. Now that might not immediately strike us as one of the most important things that the angel says here, but what the angel just said would have communicated a massive load of truth to Zacharias. I've intentionally refrained until today using the name of this angel because it's not given to us until right now. And that's on purpose. I want us to feel the weight that Zacharias would have felt in this moment when he learns for the first time exactly which angel he's speaking to. The angel says, I am Gabriel. Now I know Gabriel is a famous angel to us, but he's famous primarily because of the birth announcement to Mary. That's when we think about the angel Gabriel. The angel Gabriel is also famous because there's only three angels uh, for whom we know their name in all of scripture. We know there are myriads and myriads of angels, but we're only given the name Gabriel, Michael, and of course, Lucifer, who is a fallen angel and is Satan. Those are the only three angels that are named for us in the scripture. So when you hear the name Gabriel, it, 
It, it makes sense. It seems familiar to you, but understand it would have seemed familiar to Zacharias as well, but not because of the birth announcement to Mary, because that hadn't happened yet. That was going to happen in the course of six or so months from this time. Instead, Zacharias would have known the name Gabriel from the account of the prophet Daniel. He would have known Gabriel as the angel that is named there that gave the prophecies to the great prophet Daniel as the people were exiled in Babylon. Daniel was one of the premier prophets of the Old Testament. Some of the prophecies that God gave to Daniel are, are truly magnificent. In fact, God gave to Daniel, we don't have time to look at it, but he gave him prophecies of, of world history, of kings that would rise and fall. And by this time, those prophecies have already come to pass. The kings that he said would rise, rose, and the kings that he said would fall, fell. And even in Daniel, we're laid out a, a timeline of when Messiah will come. And guess what? If you're following the timeline in the time of Zacharias, the time's running very short for when the Messiah will appear. And so Zacharias would have known very well the name Gabriel, and suddenly a reality check hits him when he says, uh-oh. I didn't calculate this very well. There's something in the Greek grammar here that's very difficult to bring into the English, but it, it's a play on words it's that, that makes this scene come to life. Because the way that, that Zacharias says, I am an old man, is emphatic in the Greek language. It's as if he's, he's telling Gabriel, I am an old man, I'm an old guy. He's putting emphasis on, I'm an old man. Well, when Gabriel responds to him, he uses the same Greek structure to give the same emphasis as if to say, I am Gabriel. Uh-oh. How, how will I know these things are gonna be true? The, the angel begins by saying, well, I'm Gabriel. That's your first clue. But there's a second clue. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Now, when he says that, he doesn't just mean I'm an angel who's in heaven where God's presence resides. It's, it's more serious than that. He means he is an angel of the highest rank, that he stands right there in the face of God, ready to do God's bidding. He is allowed to come close to the Lord. He is a high ranking angel. God hasn't just sent any angel. He has sent one who is there at his hand, who is there before his face, a high ranking angel to speak to him. And Gabriel wants to be clear that the words that he has just said to Zacharias are not his words. He didn't come up with this. Instead, he says, and I have been sent to speak to you. The words that I say to you, Gabriel says, are not of my own accord. I speak as one who comes from the very presence of God and from that high position, God sent me to come to you to say this. Therefore, he speaks on God's behalf. He's simply a messenger. So to disbelieve the words of Gabriel is to disbelieve the very words of God himself. And not only that, to add insult to injury, he ends by reminding Zacharias of the heart of God in giving this message when he says, I was sent here to bring you this good 
news. This is good news, Zacharias. Your response should not be a lack of faith, but of rejoicing. This is good news of great joy. You can feel the weight of conviction that Zacharias must have felt as he's shaking his head at his own disbelief, realizing that his response has been completely inappropriate to the moment. This is the best news he's ever heard in his life. And instead of rejoicing and bursting at the seams, he asked for a sign. You can almost hear the conversation in his head as he's regretting his choice. And it's here that we see the grandeur and the glory of the providence of God in this narrative. God is a master artist, as we said earlier, and we see his artistry in the fact that even when we are sinful and unbelieving in our responses, he can weave together into one action something that provides correction and rightful discipline to us, but also furthers and accomplishes his plan of redemption. That's exactly what happens here. Zacharias asked for a sign and Gabriel's gonna answer his prayer for a sign in a way that provides correction for Zacharias's unbelieving response, but also in a way that, that testifies to the magnitude of what God is doing. Look back at the passage together in verse 20. He goes on to say, and behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The sign that the angel's going to give to Zacharias is the fact that he will be unable to speak. He's going to literally be mute in fact, there are hints here later in the passage that perhaps, we can't be definitive here, but perhaps Zacharias was not only made mute, but deaf as well. Because later in Luke 1.62, it says, and they made signs to his father, that's Zacharias, as to what, to what he should be called. Now, why did they have to make signs to him? If he could hear them, you would think they would just speak to him and Zacharias would make signs back to them. But they have to make signs to Zacharias for him to answer them. And so it's very likely that at the same time he becomes both mute and deaf so that now he's locked into the silence of his own mind and the words that he heard last were the words of this angel that will be now reverberating through his mind until they are fulfilled. Notice first of all, Gabriel makes it clear that this prophecy is going to happen. He says this these things will come to pass in their proper time. He also says that this disciplinary sign will be temporary. It's only going to be until these things are fulfilled and it's gonna have a twofold effect as we'll see. First of all, it has an effect on Zacharias. Just imagine you see this magnificent display of an angel. He gives you this prophecy. It's the best news you've ever heard. It's the best news the people of Israel have ever heard. And you wanna rush out and tell everyone and you can't speak. Your mouth is closed. You can't hear. You're just left with silence. And for a little over nine months, you're gonna sit in that silence and the words of that angel are gonna reverberate like an echo over and over and over again. But what we're gonna see is that God's gonna use that 
And the faithlessness of Zacharias is gonna be transformed into joyous proclamation so that when his tongue is released, he will speak of the glories of God and he will declare with fullness of joy and faith what these things mean. But for now, he's going to be quiet and meditate. But the sign also has a second function, a function for the watching world because when God makes Zacharias mute and deaf and he comes out and people recognize this, it, murmurs begin to take place, whispers begin to happen. Something happened at the temple today. It was not an ordinary time of prayer. And this rumor begins to spread then through the people exactly as God intended for it to do. That brings us to the next scene, scene number four, the witnesses in verses 21 to 23. Verse 21 says, the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. The process of offering incense on the altar was actually relatively short. The priest would have entered, he would have said a short prayer, and then he would have burned the incense and immediately turned around and left. But not only was it short, it was very familiar. These people probably came for the day of prayer with some regularity, if not every day. And so they're very used to coming and praying and waiting. And that short amount of time is, is normal to them. So as they're there praying and Zacharias doesn't come out, it starts to get suspicious picture yourself there. You're there. The priest goes in. And so you begin your private prayer time and you pray your prayer about the normal length you would pray. And you look up and he's not there. Maybe you look around and you say, well, I'll pray a little more thinking surely I'll, I'll pray and he'll, he'll interrupt me this time as I pray. But you go and you pray again. You open your eyes. He's still not there. Now at this point, people begin to clue into the fact that something different has happened and they may begin to think some pretty serious thoughts because remember, it was no small thing to draw near to the presence of God. We have clear instructions in, in the law of how priests were to carry out these tasks. And they begin to think maybe Zacharias made a mistake. Maybe he's dead in there. Maybe that's why he's not coming out. Or maybe he passed out and fainted at the overwhelming uh, uh, reality of being so close to the Holy of Holies. And they're wondering, where is he? You can hear maybe the murmurs of the people begin to spread. And then finally, only after that, does he come out. But when he comes out, it's clear things are not normal. Verse 22, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Remember, as we've said, the thing that Zacharias was supposed to do when he came out of the temple was pronounce the Aaronic blessing over the people. You know, may the Lord keep you and bless you, make his face shine upon you. This is what he was supposed to say, but he can't speak. And so you can understand how animated he must have been as he's trying to communicate in any way that he can. Obviously, he knows no sign language. He's never been deaf before, but he's doing all of this and they're trying to understand something has happened to Zacharias. And what caught my attention is the fact that the people immediately connect what must have happened to him with being a vision. If you look back at verse 22, they realize that he had seen a vision in the temple. Now, why were they so quick, especially after 400 years of silence, 
Why were they so quick to assume that this was a divine visitation? Well, it's because they connected the way that Zacharias looked and acted in that moment with other Old Testament passages when people had been confronted by God or an angel. Remember Daniel, who I mentioned before, in Daniel chapter 10, listen to how he responds to a vision he receives. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them and they ran away and hid themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Now listen to what happened to him. Yet no strength was left in me for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Obviously it even affected the, the, the natural tone of his skin skin color because it was so overwhelming. In fact, Ezekiel, you may not realize this, but Ezekiel at one point was made mute also as a sign to the people of Israel. Ezekiel three says, moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I'll open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says the Lord, he who hears, let him hear. He who refuses, let him refuse for they are a rebellious house. So the people must have connected these things together. The, the, the physical face of Zacharias likely changed as all the blood leaves his face after seeing this angelic vision. And then also he's mute. Perhaps they connect these things together and they say, obviously he must've been visited by the Lord. He can't tell them what happened but enough is communicated to them that the word begins to spread. And that was the point. The point of these things is that it would cause a stir among others. But he goes on then in verses 24 and 25 to return home. We'll call this scene number five, the fulfillment. Look back at verse 24 starting verse 23, actually, when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. Apparently Zacharias was only somewhere in the middle of the week of service. He finishes out his week of service the best that he can. And then he goes home to resume normal life and obviously resumes normal life with his wife. And it says, after these days, verse 24, his wife became pregnant. Now don't miss the significance of this. Picture a woman who should be a grandmother several times over becoming pregnant. Now this is, this is shocking. It'd be shocking in our day and age, even with the medical advances that we have and things like that. But especially at this time period, it would have been unheard of except in other biblical prophecies and events. This is, this is clearly an act of the Lord. And just put yourself for a moment in the shoes of Elizabeth, this woman who by God's account is a righteous woman and yet she's lived with the scornful disgrace of not being able to have a child. This would have caused the, the gossiping whispers in the marketplace as she passes by and she knows what they're talking about. This would have caused others to, to falsely and slanderously assume that her childlessness meant that she had a stain on her moral character, some hidden sin in the closet that was causing this. What must she have felt on the day when it became unmistakably clear to her that she was pregnant? 
By this time, surely Zacharias has scratched out whatever he could on a tablet or something to tell her what happened in the temple. So she knows she's not only pregnant, but she's carrying the forerunner of Messiah. Obviously, it must have taken a a joyous toll on her. And we're told here that she kept herself in verse 24 in seclusion for five months. Now we're not told why, and really we can only speculate as to why. There's nothing in the law that would have required her to do this. The angel didn't require her to do this. The best we can do is take an educated guess based on the context and based on what she's going to say in just a moment. It may have been that she she decided to hide herself until she was showing enough physically, her pregnancy was visibly obvious, so that when she told people, I'm pregnant, they actually believed her. If, if a woman of her age were to walk out and begin proclaiming, I, I'm pregnant, come, let's have, let, you know, break bread and enjoy each other and celebrate, people would have thought she lost her mind, perhaps. Only adding insult to injury from the life that she's lived of already being under this scandal, if you will, of not being able to have a child. So she secludes herself for five months until it's obvious and then reveals herself to the world. But notice how the passage ends here in verse 25 with the words of Elizabeth. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now notice a couple of things right off the bat. First of all, she gives glory to God, realizing this indeed is the hand of God upon her. That's the only answer to why she's pregnant. Every pregnancy is to be attributed to God alone, but especially one like this, in which her body had to be miraculously prepared to carry a child at her age. Secondly, we are... Our our assumptions are confirmed here in verse 25 because she says he's taken away my disgrace among men, which means that in fact, this had been a difficult trial. It had caused scorn and disgrace among men in the eyes of others. And the Lord is taking that away and giving her a child, but not just a child, a child who will prepare the way of Messiah, a child who will be the forerunner so that her disgrace will not just be able to be taken away from the ugly rumors of not being able to have a child, but her sin would be able to be forgiven through the Messiah. Now at this point, our primary passage comes to an end but God's not done working with this couple. What I wanna do in the remainder of our time is just give you a a quick aerial view of what happens next, the rest of the story and how God brings all of this together. First, we understand Gabriel comes to make another announcement this time to Mary. And he will announce to Mary that she will become miraculously pregnant as well, only even more so because she will remain a virgin. And Gabriel references the pregnancy of Elizabeth, who's her relative, as proof that God can do this. Luke 1, 36 to 38, behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month for nothing will be impossible with God. In verse 38, Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
But then after Mary becomes pregnant, miraculously, she takes a trip, you remember, to visit her relative Elizabeth. And now we are recalling the words of Gabriel. What did he say? One of the things he said about this boy, John, is that he would be filled with the spirit while yet in the womb. You remember that? Was that just a poetic way of speaking or was he being literal? He was being literal and we see that in Luke chapter one because look what happens when the two of them meet, Mary and Elizabeth, verse 39. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. John leaps in the womb of his mother. And we're told here that this is intended to be taken as, as a sign as a divine sign and God inspires Elizabeth to be able to understand the meaning and significance of this sign. This is John's first testimony, if you will, to who this baby is in the, Mary of, uh, in the womb of Mary. He's already fulfilling his role as the forerunner, preparing the way of Christ and identifying the Christ. But only notice that she doesn't just refer to the baby in Mary's womb as Messiah. What does she refer to the baby as, Elizabeth? She's inspired to say this. She calls him my Lord, verse 43. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Elizabeth has just said something profound. That baby in the womb of Mary is indeed the Messiah, but he is more than that even, he is the God-man in the womb of Mary was the Lord, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the one prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6, when it says that he will be called mighty God for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. This is the child in Mary's womb. John testifies to it and his mother Elizabeth testifies to it. Now after this, Mary gives her famous response and, and she has prophetic words of her own given to her to say about Christ. But what I want you to recognize is that all the while as these months are going and as these events are taking place in, even in the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth, Zacharias is still silent. He can't say anything. He can't join in. He can't declare what he has seen. He's just there, but he's meditating. He's thinking on the things that are happening in front of him, the things that have happened to him. And remember, when did Gabriel say the silence of Zacharias would be lifted? It would be lifted when these things were fulfilled. 
So let's end this morning by looking at the end of the story when John is born. In Luke 1, 57 to 66, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she gave birth to his son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, no, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, his name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Now it was customary for the father to have the privilege of naming the child, especially in this case with a firstborn son. The son was to carry on the family name and often took the name of the father. That's what they go to do. That's the normal custom. They go to name him Zacharias. Elizabeth speaks up, but they need confirmation from Zacharias. And so at the moment that Zacharias obeys the word of God through Gabriel and names the boy John, it's at that moment of obedience that his tongue is set free and he begins to speak. And there in that passage, it just summarized what he said as he gave praise to God. But thankfully... In the, in the following verses, it's outlined for us some of the things that Zacharias said. Now remember, he's been, he's been meditating, he's been trapped in his own mind, if you will, for these several months, meditating on these things. And as the words of the angel Gabriel echo in his mind, he's been connecting those with Old Testament passages, putting dots together as to not only who this child will be, but who the child he will prepare the way for will be. So that what comes out of Zacharias's mouth, what I want you to see is when Zacharias is finally able to speak, he doesn't speak of John. He speaks of Jesus and only says a little of what John will do. But what God has revealed to him is that the significance of your son, John, brings out the significance of my son, Jesus. Listen to Luke 1, 67 through 80. And his father, father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child, this is the first thing he says about John, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation 
by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What I want you to see is that Zacharias connected the dots. He connected the dots to the significance of his son, but also to the significance of the one his son would come to proclaim. When Zacharias finally has the privilege of speech, he pours out Old Testament language. We don't have time to look at this, but there's so many Old Testament prophecies squished into those words. He quotes from passages like Psalm 106.10, from Micah 7.2, from Psalm 105, from Genesis 22.16, from Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, from Isaiah 9.2 and so on. All in those verses, almost everything he says attaches to an Old Testament prophecy that is now coming to pass. And notice this salvation that his son will come proclaiming before the way of the Messiah is a salvation that will come in the form of forgiveness of sins. This is the significance of Christmas. This is our greatest joy. As you understand, if you're in Christ, the the gift of Christmas won't be found under your tree. It's found in a lowly manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man whom Elizabeth called Lord, the Redeemer who came to crush the head of the serpent to take on himself the wrath of God that we deserved so that we could have forgiveness of our sins. This is the gift of Christmas. And God has done it plainly and is clearly painting it across the landscape of human history in a way that cannot be denied. What else could God have done to make it more clear to you and I today that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who came to redeem us from our sins? God has prophesied about his son all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. He's continued to add prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. He's fulfilled those prophecies before a watching world so that it is the height of arrogance and foolishness to reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. If you think the unbelief of Zacharias on that day is hard to understand and explain, imagine how God thinks of the hardness of heart today towards his son after all that he has done, living on this side of the cross when we have seen God in the face of Messiah and he's even risen from the dead and yet people still reject him. If you think John was a great prophet By his own words, he would tell you he had nothing on Christ. Let me remind you how Hebrews describes the ministry, the prophetic ministry of Jesus. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature 
and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This Christmas, the only question that remains is the same question that remains every time we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will you respond to this Jesus? Will you understand as John proclaimed, as Jesus proclaimed that you and I are sinners, that our sin has separated us from the holy God who made us, a good God who is kind and gracious to us and yet we have spurned his goodness by our sin. And yet God in his kindness has sent his son, his only son, his precious son, the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, to live as we should have lived, that he might die as we deserve to die on the cross, to take the wrath of God on himself for our sins, then to rise again from the grave, proving that he is the son of God and that the father has accepted his sacrifice for sin. All that's left to do is to respond to the very first message that Mark records Jesus ever preaching, repent and believe the gospel. This is the response to the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Put your faith alone in Jesus Christ, committing to turn from your sins to follow after Christ, and you will have eternal life, the life that he came to purchase for us by his life, death, and resurrection. Don't respond in hardness of heart and unbelief, but believe the messenger who came before him. Let me close with the words of John. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. If you're in Christ this morning, let me just give you three quick words of application and we'll close. They're simple, they're straightforward, they're straight from this passage. One is faith. If you're a Christian today, let me encourage you to analyze your faith. The story of Zacharias has reminded us that it's possible to have genuine faith in, in Christ, to be a true believer and yet have moments of weak faith in which we doubt God's word. Let me ask you this morning, are you living your life as if everything God has said in his word is true? You say you believe the Bible to be the word of God, does that show up in your life? Would others be able to tell that you believe the scriptures by the way you live? Secondly, joy. The scriptures call us over and over again, rejoice, always. Again, I say to you, rejoice in all things, rejoice, right? It's, it's all over the New Testament. 
But we're reminded in this passage where that joy must be rooted. The only way a Christian can rejoice always is if that joy is rooted in Christ and Christ alone. The joy of the Christian life is not in your family, it's not in your children or your marriage, certainly not in your possessions or in your career. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a joy unshakable, take the joy that's pronounced in this passage of a baby who would be born in Bethlehem to redeem a people from their sins. That will get you out of the bed in the morning with true joy, no matter what your circumstances bring, because we know that we are his. And then thirdly, proclamation, proclamation. As Zacharias was locked in his own mind for those months, and then his mouth came bursting forth with joyous proclamation when he was allowed to speak, you and I have been given the privilege of speaking of the glories of Christ. Don't waste those opportunities. As you gather with your family here today and tomorrow, let's just admit sometimes those family gatherings can be awkward. They can be the hardest. You've tried to share the gospel with that person year after year and you've, you've started to wonder, is there any hope? Should I just be quiet? Let me encourage you in, in, at the right time in the right ways, declare the joy that is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss the opportunity to proclaim the goodness of Christ.